Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So on the one hand, we've got a whole bunch of people in the United States who are very concerned that they don't want to die. They don't want to get a virus that's going to cause them a lifetime of stroke or dementia or kidney damage or liver damage or heart damage or brain damage or, I mean, fill in the blanks, right? Lung damage. And on the other hand, you've got, well, these emails that I'm continuously getting from FreedomWorks, the group that the Kochs helped start and that, you know, brought us the Tea Party saying, uh, you know, Thomas, it's time to open the country, you know, (laughs) just going on and on and on, you know, about this kind of thing. And, it, you know, it's turning into quite the debate. How do we do this? What do we do? Where are the standards? Why is it that every other country in the world has standards for, you know, what schools should do if they're going to open, what businesses should do if they're going to open? Remington Gregg is on the line with us. He's the Council for Civil Justice and Consumer Rights at Public Citizen citizen.org is the website. Remington, welcome to the program. Tell us your thoughts on, we've got workers in the food supply, we've got teachers. Let's start there. Well, it's good to be here. You know, Mitch McConnell and Republicans are saying that, yes, we need to open up the economy. We're doing it fast. We're doing it uh, pretty unsafely. And while also doing that, they want to immunize businesses from coronavirus-related lawsuits, meaning that if you are a worker, if you are a consumer, and a business took unreasonable, unsafe practices, conduct, and you contracted coronavirus and either got sick or died, they want to immunize those businesses from being able to sue. It's pretty amazing, the, just the, the breadth and the scope of this type of proposal. I just got an email from Adam Brandon, who is the big cheese over at FreedomWorks, you know, the thing that brought us the Tea Party and Coke Brothers, and it says my name, and then lockdown leftists are looking for any excuse to reinstate their economically devastating lockdown order, and the fake news media is doing everything they can to give them one, even though the coronavirus mortality rate keeps declining. Don't let them get away with it. That's in all caps with an exclamation mark. Please send your governor a message. Tell them to do everything they can to protect our most vulnerable citizens and, in all caps, keep America open. The fake news media has done nothing but praise Governor Andrew Cuomo for his draconian lockdown measures. But what they always fail to report is that Cuomo's own survey found that 66% of hospitalized patients were literally at home when they got infected. 
this, you know, and then it goes on from here. I mean, how in the face of this, you know, when FreedomWorks is saying this, you know, that the billionaires and all the business groups are basically promoting this. How do we push back against this? Yeah. Well, I mean, they're doing it for a very simple reason. It's profits. They want to open up. They want to be able to force workers back. Because remember, once businesses reopen, you can no longer stay on unemployment. So you have to then make a choice, either go back to an unsafe workplace or lose your job. And what we're seeing, I mean, let's just put to the side all of the people who have been getting sick because they were at amusement parks and rallies and all these sorts of things. Let's look at the meatpacking plants which have a rise in infection rates. Let's look at nursing homes. More than 40% of all coronavirus-related deaths are from workers and from residents in nursing homes. So it's clear that we are not keeping these spaces safe. So what we have to do is obviously, number one, push back and push back against Mitch McConnell and Republicans who are saying that this is the only way to open. Number two, we have to ensure that we are doing what we can to keep these workplaces safe, to ensure that they are, if we are in a workplace, that they are following health guidelines and simply just making your voice heard. It has to be, you have to make your voice heard because if you do this, if Republicans get their wish and they're able to do this, this would paper over the laws of all 50 states. This would be a federal way of removing all state laws related to negligence claims and claims that you bring to keep workplaces and workspaces safe. Yeah. And the liability issue is a big one, but there's this larger issue of basically libertarians love to say that they're opposed to government force or they're opposed to force in all forms. Right. But if I'm a low wage worker and I am living literally paycheck to paycheck and I'm looking at the possibility of eviction and homelessness and I'm having a hard time buying groceries and I certainly can't afford pharmaceuticals or even gas for the car right now. And the one employer who I have a relationship with who's willing to bring me back to work and give me another paycheck says, I'm not going to make it any safer for you working in this uh, retail environment or working in this factory or whatever it may be. You know, it's just going to be the way it's always been. But if you don't come back, I'm going to challenge your unemployment claim and you're going to lose everything. I mean, how is that not force? And why is there no, well, I get why there's no federal protection. You know, the billionaires basically own the show. But how do Republicans think that they can survive politically, continuing to force people back into the workplace when that means sickness? And and let me expand that to schools. I mean, you've got a lot of teachers who are not in their 20s anymore and are looking at going back to school where, yeah, the kids are not going to, you know, I mean, the percentage of kids who get really, really sick with this uh, syndrome, this Kawasaki syndrome kind of disease is quite small, but they're contagious little buggers. What do we do? (laughs) Well, that's a good question. And it's amazing that Republicans continue to push such unpopular policies. And one of the reasons why they do that is because the Chamber of Commerce is very, very powerful and has a lot of money. And this is what they want. They're actually using a pandemic to get what they want. They're using the pandemic as a hook to do what they're main organizational goal is to do, which is to limit your access to justice, access to the court system, ability to hold companies accountable. And when we talk about this, I'm very clear when I talk about this, it's important 
for workers, it's important for consumers, but this is a civil rights issue as well. This is a gender justice issue. It's a racial justice issue because we are reopening the economy on the backs of black and brown workers who are already are disproportionately impacted by coronavirus. They are dying more and for all of us who are staying home. And if you continue right. to reopen the economy and you immunize businesses, there will be even more sickness, even more depth. And it's not white middle class America who will be dealing with this. It will be black and brown people. And if we are serious about and talking women. about race and women, yes, exactly, who make I up mean, a large percentage of teachers, uh, health care type. Exactly. So we have to talk right. about this broadly, racial justice, gender justice, and how we fulfill the promises of equality. Yeah. And so how do we do that? You want to say to Mitch McConnell, we oppose this. You want to say to Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, stay strong, don't immunize businesses, and just keep fighting. So speak out. Call 202-225-3121 and yell at your congressperson. (laughs) Respectfully, of course. I get it. Remington Gregg, the Council for Civil Justice and Consumer Rights over at Public Citizen, citizen citizen.org. Remington, thanks so much for dropping by. It's been great talking with you. And you, too. Thank you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So what are your plans with regard to school this fall or those the plans of those around you? Is this is this crazy opening our schools? So we've got a new video up over at TomHartman.com. There's a really troubling concatenation of events that are happening in the United States right now. We created these concentration camps for refugees seeking asylum. This was Stephen Miller's big project. And we've got concentration camps for children, concentration camps for male adults, concentration camps for female adults. And now we've got this virus sweeping through the United States and people are starting to die in these concentration camps which has provoked ICE to, uh, or whoever's running them, to deport hundreds of the children back to the countries that they came from without their parents, which is mind-boggling, and in many cases carrying disease. This is serious stuff, and we need to be talking about it. The new video is over at TomHartman.com. Carl in Ocala, Florida. Hey, Carl, what's on your mind today? Well, I've got a couple things to talk about. Can I ask you a real quick, brief question first? Are By your all means. available on, on Audible? Uh, I don't know the answer to that question. I know that there are audio versions of many of my books, and I think there's audio versions of every single one of the new Hidden History series. But whether they're available, I'd be astonished if they were not available on Audible. Good. I'll keep looking. I, I haven't found them, and I've suffered from glaucoma, so reading is kind of behind me. Mm. My comment, my question was, you know, you can listen on television, and at my age, with my retirement and so on, that's my main source of anything to do since I don't go out of the house. You can hear all day long comments about how awful the Republicans and Trump is and everybody else and why they're doing such terrible things. We need to move forward with down-ballot changing. We can change what state houses do. We can change what states do and what feds do. If we start changing and don't focus 110% on the head of the game, which we all know has to go. 
but mm-hmm. I think it's so important. Are you aware of where things stand? I'm not, frankly, in the process of allowing all states, all 50, and funding that effort to have mail-in voting. Uh, where does it that would stand? be a question for Pocan, because I know H.R. 1 was this sweeping piece of legislation to, to make voting easier for people across the United States. And I have a recollection, but again, this is not a, not a fact. This is just, I vaguely recall, this was, you know, months ago, maybe a year ago when H.R. 1 came out, in fact, almost two years ago, that it provided, that it required states to relatively easily provide people with mail-in ballots. But I frankly don't recall any of the details of how that works. And, of course, H.R. 1 is never going to be picked up by Mitch McConnell because he doesn't want, you know, fair and widely available voting. Uh, You know, as Paul Weyrich said, Republicans' leverage in the election goes up when the voting populace goes down, period, full stop. That's it, full stop. The other comment I wanted to make actually was concerning masks. You and I have had a couple of conversations about tactical versus strategic planning. You know, when you're mm-hmm. thinking something like enforcing mass, you can only do it one of two ways. You either force it or you strongly support it. If you apply the logic of a driver's license, you can't operate a motor vehicle legally on a public street without a little piece of paper called a driver's license. The mass doesn't protect the wearer. You have every right to make a choice about your own life. If it protected just you, like an N95, then you could choose to take wear it or not wear it. But why are we not creating the message that the mask protects others and you do not have a right not to protect those around you? You don't have that right. I think that message, Carl, has been fairly well communicated on places like Free Speech TV and CNN and MSNBC. The only place where I think that message is completely absent is on Fox so-called news. I don't listen, so I wouldn't know. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very but that's, much. That's why these guys are, you know, these, these poor, pathetic people who watch Fox News are completely uninformed about this. They don't understand the science. They don't understand the practicality of it. They just don't understand how it works. And then, the, you know, and add to that, then they listen to right-wing hate radio and they get just pure lies telling them, oh, it's all a Democrat hoax designed to hurt Trump. Really? Did you know that Ronald Reagan committed treason to become president in 1980 and George Herbert Walker Bush was in on it and he avoided being prosecuted for this in 1992 with a little help from Bill Barr? It's on page 116 of my book, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. So this fall, which is like, you know, in a month, well, two months technically, but in some states, actually, some states are starting school back in August. And you have states now, Ron DeSantis down in Florida, probably the stupidest governor in the United States. And you've got this guy saying, yeah, we're going to start school back up. Yep, everything's going to be fine. Kids don't get real sick with this. And, of course, there's some truth that not all kids get sick with it, although, you know, not all kids die or have permanent brain damage from, uh, you know, meningitis, but we vaccinate people against it. 
Not all people die from hepatitis A. In fact, it's fairly rare, but we vaccinate people against it. Hepatitis B. I mean, there's a bunch of diseases that probably hurt fewer young people than COVID does. And plus, you know, we're just, we really don't even know. I mean, this is a disease that literally has existed in the human population for six months. We don't know the long-term effects of this in adults or children. We do know that children do die from this. We do know that children get sick from this. But that's almost a side issue. I mean, if I was the parent of a school-aged child, and Louise and I have three kids who were school-aged kids all at various times, so I can kind of imagine the situation, and of course I was one myself once too. If I was the parent of a school-aged child right now, and my governor said, we're going to open our schools back up, your kids can come to school, I would say no. Because A, I don't want my kids exposed to a disease that could kill them or injure them for the rest of their lives without there being a good, effective treatment or vaccine to prevent that. And frankly, I think that we're less than a year away from that. So taking my kids out of school and homeschooling them for a year, I would do. Now, you know, you say, well, that's easy for you to say. You don't have kids. You know, your kids are all grown up. Well, yeah, but, you know, we actually did this with one of our our youngest child. She, uh, it's a long and very funny story, but I won't tell it to you right now. I have told it on the air before. But basically, she came to us when she was around 14 or 15 and said, I'm not going to go back to school. You guys, you know, you have a choice. You can put me in a private school like you did my brother. Or, you know, one of our kids went to public school. One went to private school. This is all, you know, post seventh grade. And one homeschooled. She said, or you can homeschool us. And we said, okay, we'll homeschool you. And it was a great experience for all of us. But, you know, again, that was a time when she could go out to get an art class. And she could go, she could leave the house to get a music class. And she had, she hung out with her friends all afternoon. So there was no lack of social interaction. But... My reason for saying, no, I'm going to homeschool my kid if I had school-age kids right now would be twofold. Number one, I don't want my kid to be the one who happens to be the one who brings COVID into the classroom and infects the the 45-year-old teacher who ends up dead. I really would not uh, prefer not to have that on my conscience. And number two, I don't want my kid to be the one who picks it up from a kid who sits next to them at school and brings them home and gets me sick. And I'm dead, or my wife, or we're, you know, we're suffering strokes and brain damages and heart disease. I mean, we, are, we crap on our schools in this country. Teachers have to buy supplies. They have to buy chalk. They have to buy, if they, if they want to be concerned about the coronavirus, and we saw this in the spring, you know, in the tail end of the last school year, you know, in the late winter, they have to buy their own hand sanitizer. They have to buy their own Clorox wipes. they're underpaid to begin with and then this I think this is criminal I think what Ron DeSantis is proposing is criminal instead in my opinion what he should be doing is saying we are going to embark over the next six months on a statewide program here in Florida to make sure that every child has access to high-speed internet that is capable of remote instruction We find that depending on whose numbers you're looking at, I've seen three different surveys now that range from 25 to 40 percent of school-aged children in the United States do not have access to high-quality, reliable broadband, and so they can't homeschool. 
So number one, I would put that into place. It would be job one. Do it like Chattanooga. Make it a state utility. And number two, I would throw a whole bunch of money at those teachers and those schools and say, okay, now you guys figure out how to do this remotely so that these kids can learn from home. Or number three, and you know, I saw a news report on this some months ago. I forget whether it was Taiwan or Japan, but in, or South Korea. It was one of those Asian countries that have done very, very well with the coronavirus. And they're reopened, they've reopened their schools. The kids are in classes of eight or 10 kids. They don't mingle with other kids in the school. They're like little bubbles, little pods. The teachers stay 10, 12 feet away from them. They've reconfigured the air into these classrooms. And they think they've got it relatively safe. Of course, they, they're not experiencing an epidemic anymore either. They've got this thing under control. So I guess our question, you know, very straightforward, is, you know, how do we do this? Is forcing schools going to cause a revolt? Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. It's the Tom Harbin University Book Club, and today we're reading from ADD Success Stories, a guide for fulfillment to fulfillment for families with attention deficit disorder. And it's really individuals as well. And mostly the book is well over 100 individual stories about ways that people have learned how to be successful in life and uh, just sharing them with others. A lot of these came from when I ran the ADD forum on CompuServe. And a lot of these are, you know, other people's stories from CompuServe, some of them from when Louise was coaching, when we were running the community for ADHD kids, all kinds of stuff. So... This is from chapter 5, page 47, titled, Learning How to Handle Criticism and Self-Criticism. And it opens with a quote from Benjamin Disraeli in 1860. He said, it's much easier to be critical than to be correct. One of the most common and recurring strategies that successful hunters, that's people with ADD, tell about is how they've learned to handle criticism. A successful ADD entrepreneur tells the story of how devastated he was in a high school presentation that he'd spent the better part of two months on for English class. He read dozens of books, dug out arcane facts, sifted through quotes and stories and information, all to find what he thought was the absolutely perfect summary to make his point. With great enthusiasm, he pulled an all-nighter, writing the final paper, and marched off to school the next day with his head high and the smell of academic victory in his nostrils. At 2 o'clock, he walked into his English classroom and marched up to the teacher's desk, a paper in his hand. Here it is, he said, and handed it to her with a dramatic flourish. She took one glance at it, leaned over the side of the desk, and dropped it into the wastebasket. You didn't double space it, she said. When are you going to learn to read the directions? Stunned, he began to protest to tell her about the hours of work he'd done. She shook her head as if shaking his words out of her ears and interrupted him, saying, You have to learn how to do things right. This will be a good lesson for you. I'm giving you an F for that paper, and there's no appeal because today was the last day you could hand it in. He went home that night and at the ripe old age of 14 cried himself to sleep. I learned two important lessons from that experience, he told me 20 years later. The first was that I needed to slow down to force myself to read directions. In that regard, it was probably a positive experience. But it also almost destroyed my commitment to her, to the class, to the school, and to any future academic achievement. And that was where I learned my second and most important lesson. When you fall down, stand back up, dust yourself off, and carry on. That sounds easy, I said, but how do you do it? How do you go from being angry about her, from blaming her, or for that matter, from blaming yourself? I have a picture in my mind, he said, of a man who's walking down a dusty rural road. He trips on a stone and falls face first into the dirt. Then he reaches over to the side of the road, grabs a stick, and begins to beat himself over the head with a stick, yelling at himself about how stupid he was to trip and fall. Between these comments, he's cursing the stone for being there and blaming it for tripping him. That's absurd, isn't it? But that's just what many people do. And when I imagine that picture and I see how absurd it is to wallow in self-blame, I feel empowered to get on with my life. End of quote. 
Unfortunately, the absurd behavior that this entrepreneur described is just what so many people do, particularly those who've spent their lives feeling like they've never quite lived up to their potential. They respond to criticism first by blaming the critic and then by beating themselves up. They rationalize the former by taking a debating position, finding flaws in the criticism or the critic, and then rationalize the latter by telling themselves that if they beat themselves up emotionally, they'll learn from the experience. In real life, it rarely works that way. People who pursue this strategy instead just end up bruised and ineffectual, paralyzed by fear of criticism or by the damage they do to themselves in the name of lesson learning. So how can we best handle criticism? And then we go through some more stories. The first step is to examine the criticism to see if there's any truth in it. Usually there is some truth to criticism, and if we can separate out the kernel of truth from the emotional baggage associated with it, we could often learn something useful. For example, when my first book on ADD was published, one reviewer wrote a scathing and sarcastic commentary on it. While much of the commentary was off-base or factually inaccurate, he did point out one real deficiency. My premise of Hunters and Farmers was based on anthropology, but I hadn't gotten the endorsement of any anthropologists or cited any anthropological texts in my bibliography. So, deciding that he had a point, I sought out people with the requisite knowledge of hunting and farming culture. I first found Will Crinan, MD, who, while not an anthropologist, was one of the few medical doctors in the world to have spent years of his career as the physician to an indigenous hunting society, one of the last of the Native American tribes in Canada. Each year, every year, he followed them with his small plane as they made their annual 1,000-mile trek with the caribou they hunted. He told me that when he first arrived, he found that the previous doctor had diagnosed 100% of their children with ADD and put the entire school on Ritalin. That, for me, was a pretty good validation of the hunter-farmer theory. Then I met cultural anthropologist Jay Fikes, Ph.D., who wrote the famous books debunking Carlos Castaneda. Dr. Fikes obtains his Ph.D. by studying the few remaining Native American hunting societies of the American Southwest and Northern Mexico. After reading my book, he wrote a ringing endorsement of it saying that his experience taught him that hunting and agricultural societies were profoundly different and that the individuals who make them up are profoundly different. There's a startlingly high percentage of what we would call ADD among some of the members of native hunting tribes. So that criticism of my book, as sarcastic and stinging as it was, made the book better. Anyhow, the book is ADD Success Stories, A Guide to Fulfillment for Families with Attention Deficit Disorder. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. Uh, one other thing, I, I'm, I'm picking up your phone calls in just a half a second here, but one other thing, I just wanted to, I, I've mentioned this a couple of times on this program, but this is starting to get alarming. About two weeks ago, maybe a week and a half ago, when the Trump polls really started seriously going in the tank and Fox News was even saying, you know, no way Trump gets reelected if, if these numbers hold. This strange thing started happening. Back in 2015, when Trump was in the primary, I donated five bucks to his campaign in the name of Fred Flintstone, and I have been on his list ever since. But something weird happened in the last two weeks, because up until, I mean, literally for the last four years, four and a half years since 2015, since the primary, I've been getting three or four emails a week from the Trump campaign asking for money. I get him from Eric, I get him from Don Jr., I get him from Melania, I get him from Donald, I get him from the campaign manager, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Well, just in the last few hours, just today, just in the last five hours, I've got one right here, Donald J. Trump. This is from Donald J. Trump. 
This goes to victory.donaldtrump.com. Wow, my team just showed me our limited edition personalized Trump Pence 2020 welcome mats. And when I saw them, I knew immediately that you had to have one. Unfortunately, we already sold out of the 500 we had in stock, but I like this item so much, I asked my team to rush over 50 new mats for top supporters only. Big news, you've been selected to receive one of the 50. Brenda from Texas already claimed her welcome mat. That second mat is reserved for only you, Fred. Hurry, I can only reserve your mat for the next three hours. So there's that, okay? So they're trying to sell me a mat. And then I get this. Why haven't you accepted? This is from uh, Donald Trump Jr. Why haven't you accepted my father's invitation to join the official Trump VIP club? The Trump VIP club is highly exclusive, invite-only group of my father's most trusted supporters. So when he asked me who I thought we should invite to join, I immediately thought of Fred Flintstone from Oregon. You've always been one of the president's most loyal allies, which is why for a short time, when you make your next contribution, you'll automatically reach VIP status and cement your name in history as a member of the Trump VIP club. Does this sound like a scam to you? And then I got this one. This is from Donald J. Trump himself, apparently. Yeah, here it is. Dear Fred, I have something important to tell you. You've been an incredible ally from the very beginning. In fact, you've been identified as one of my strongest supporters. Just look at the impact you've made. And then it's got my name and address and all this stuff. And it says I've given a lifetime total of $30. I bought a Trump coloring book for 25 bucks too. He goes on to say, I told my team that I want to do something special for my top supporters like you, which is why I've requested to have an official donor list printed and framed so I can hang it in my office. For a limited time, when you make your next contribution, you'll automatically get added to the official donor list. Wow, my name will hang in the Oval Office. Can you imagine? So there's that. Keep in mind, these are all in the last couple of hours. Here's another one. This is from Donald J. Trump. In recognition of your commitment and unwavering support to President Donald J. Trump, you have been formally selected to join the presidential honor roll. I have exciting news to share with you, Fred. You've always been a top supporter of mine. And to thank you, I want to offer you a spot on my Trump presidential honor roll. And it goes on from there. And then there's another one. Don't miss your chance. I'm pleased to give you a chance to join the Trump 100 Club. The Trump 100 Club members are the ones I turn to when I need advice. I'll be counting on your feedback to represent the views of millions of voters. I'm telling you, this stuff is a scam. And he's going into late stage scam dumb here in a huge way. So, anyhow, but back to schools reopening. I wanted to talk about that. Alice in Oakland, California, your thoughts on schools? Yeah, hey, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. I want to refer people to an article. I just put it on your Facebook page on mm-hmm. the bold italic.com it's called we cannot return to campus this fall and i'm a school counselor in oakland and uh, this is written by a oakland uh, high school teacher and basically it just lists the millions of billions of reasons why it's such a ridiculous idea and he keeps refraining in this article to the question that we all have is have you ever met children so the right. idea that the kids could actually are we as counselors and teachers and staff supposed to tell them to stay apart from each other? And stay away from you, too. And, uh, Please don't and cough on me, little Johnny. <laughs> and the custodians, we've been cut back on custodians like every year since I've been working in the district. 
I mean, they can only clean only certain amounts of areas because two people can only do so much in a huge middle school. I mean, are they going to hire armies of custodians to keep the place clean? So anyway, to that, right. there's a million, a million reasons. And to that point, we are having a caravan protest. So if anyone's listening from Oakland and they want to come to the caravan protest, it's starting at East Oakland Pride Elementary and going to the downtown office where there's going to be a press conference at 5. So, um, and you're yeah, protesting we, we the opening, reopening of the schools? Yes, exactly. Because we cannot have children bringing, a lot of children live with their grandparents. I mean, it is a mess. I mean, those parents need to go to work and the kids are left home alone and there's, you know, I mean, it's, it's a terrible situation all in all, all the way around. But making everyone sick and vulnerable is definitely not the answer. Yeah, I'm with you, Alice. And this is this is let's let's just make it clear what's going on here. This all lays at the feet of the Trump administration. If they had done what pretty much every other developed country in the world has done, the ones that aren't run by autocrats, which is lock down the entire country until your infection rate is so low that infections are only occasional things. And then when they erupt, you do testing and contact tracing to nail it down. Then you can reopen your schools. Then you can reopen your business. But we never did that. We shut down for a few months, and the Trump administration did nothing. Nothing. So how the hell are we supposed to reopen? It just seems crazy to me that we even could talk about reopening our schools. By the way, just to put a punctuation mark on my rant about all these emails I'm getting from Trump, I think that he knows he can't win. And so he's trying to build his mailing list as big as possible and his war chest as big as possible. And he's going to use that money to buy a television network when he leaves office. That's my theory. Anyhow, back to schools. Shannon in Madison, Wisconsin. Hey, Shannon, your thoughts. Hi, Tom. I've been listening to you for a really long time. Thank you for taking my call. So I consider ourselves, you know, I hate this word, but we live in a privileged area in a suburban area in Madison, Wisconsin. And when our schools Mm -hmm. closed down in spring... Our schools did an incredible job, an incredible job of virtual learning. And I realized that that was not the case for everybody. And we were told by people in rural areas in Wisconsin how the Internet wasn't working or the teachers weren't doing a good job in reaching out. And I understand that. And so I think that's what a lot of people are frustrated with. But I think Mm -hmm. that what we have to remember is this word temporary that no one's saying enough. The local governments have to start using the word temporary and throw some money at it. You know, if it's going to last a year, if it's going to last a year and a half, it's not forever. You know, it's just to shift your mindset. And I don't know why people have such a hard time with that. You know, send, send laptops to the rural areas, get the Internet, like you were saying put it into your city funding or whatever it is. And Mm -hmm. I really think that people just need to focus on that word temporary and say that more often because I think that helps people wrap their head around it. I think our schools have voted, I know for a fact, actually, that our teachers have voted twice this summer. And most of our teachers have voted to say, please don't send us back. We don't want to get sick. Well, I'm wondering if Ron DeSantis tries to force the Florida schools to open, if he's going to have any teachers show up. Is he going to have a revolt? I mean, I hope he does. I hope they do revolt because it's absolutely unfair of us to put teachers who get paid as low as they do into these situations. It's just, I think it's, it's absolutely insane. Yeah, I agree. Shannon, thank you. Thank you. Remember when Amazon was offering an extra two bucks an hour? I think Kroger did it for a while, too, for, uh, you know, hazardous duty pay for frontline work. They've stopped all that. I think that this should be mandated federally. And but uh, teachers, no. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. 
For teachers, it shouldn't even be a matter of we're going to give you more money if you do that. That's uh, generally for younger people. But, uh, you know, we just should not be opening our schools. This is wrong. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com Hartman. That's netsuite.com Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Coming up on The Science Revolution, I'm asking, will the new definitions of first world and third world be those countries that have the virus under control and those countries that don't? 
Connor Gibson with Greenpeace USA is here. About three states making protesting fossil fuel pipelines a felony. Is protesting becoming illegal now? Robert Weissman with Public Citizen drops by. He's concerned about Trump's land management pick. The guy's a climate-denying extremist. I'm concerned, too. Kevin Camps from Beyond Nuclear is telling us about even more nuclear waste that they want to bury under New Mexico's desert. Plus, geeky science. Does sitting cause cancer? Tune into the Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. Marina in Bellevue, Washington. Hey, Marina, what's up? Hey, Tom. Thanks so much for taking my call. I've learned so much from you over the past few years. Thank you. I have an elementary school age daughter going into first grade. And while our school did a great job this past year with virtual learning, our school district is giving us interesting options, you know, partially in school, partially virtual. But I work in the service industry. I'm a single mom, too, and am being presented with... Like, I took time off of work to homeschool my daughter during this pastime. Mm-hmm. I tried to go back part-time to my job, and they're saying, well, we figured this would be the case. We'll offer you severance pay instead. So basically, like, being pushed out of my job because I can't accommodate their schedule, wow. just based off of childcare too, because my nephew has an autoimmune disorder, compromised immune system, so I can't risk, you know, going to work with mm-hmm. tons of people and then coming back, right, to him. And um, it's just a really odd spot that a lot of people are being put into, and it's just very frustrating all around, and it makes me nervous about, like, what's well, what's going to happen when I have to homeschool my daughter this fall because I don't want to send her back to school. And, you know, what am I going to do for work because I can't apparently go back to my job. So it's just, uh, I just wish that our government was, like, more aligned with everyone else in the entire world it's very frustrating so yeah it's a tough one marina yeah i mean you know (laughs) norway's got like what 20 deaths or something i mean it's just you look at country after country after country where they did it right and they're just like you know things things are not going on like this it's uh it's embarrassing marina thank you for the call william in hampton new jersey hey william what's up hi tom here in new jersey our governor uh said that each school district is going to have to decide what they're going to do. There's really no, there is some guidance from the state level, but how and when the kids are going to go to school is going to be up to the school district. I have two young kids, first grader, preschooler, and my wife is a teacher. So, uh, I mean, this is just stressing me out. I, we don't know what's going to does happen. Does she want to go back to teaching or is she worried about going back into the school building? She wants to teach, but she would rather not go back to the school building. Right. You know, we're in our forties; we're not young, and you know, I mean, no one knows what this what this is going to how it's going to play, play right. out. So we need um, we need some kind of a system where she can teach from home. Well, there was, and New Jersey she did a great job. I mean, she was stressed out; it was a lot of work. I mean, it was all new for the teachers to teach like that, and. And there has been rumors that they're going to split up the kids and some kids are going to go some days and some kids are going to go the other days. But that leaves us in a bind because then I would have to take off from work. And, you know, and taking off from work means no money. I don't get paid if I don't work. Right. It's, uh, it's a tough one. William, thank you. Thank you for sharing your story with us. I mean, this is the horrible conundrum. And you look at the way that other most of the European countries handle this. They simply said, we're going to take government money and give it to workers based on their regular paycheck. They're going to get 80, 85, 90 percent. Most of them ranged within that range of their regular paycheck. 
We're not going to spiff the corporations. We're not going to figure out a way for the big, the big shots and the billionaires to skim a few hundred million bucks off the top like we did here in the United States. They just did it to the workers. You know, pass the money along. So we've got a new video uh, over at TomHartman.com. It's about private equity firms. You know, Mitt Romney's company, Bain Capital, and Steve Schwartzman's Blackstone, and some of these private equity groups have long been considered risky investments. I mean, you know, billionaires put money into these things. And sometimes they produce really high returns, but they also have huge fees and they operate kind of like a black box. There's all kinds of hidden stuff. And what they have been salivating about for years, Schwartzman uh, talked about this uh, just a few days after Donald Trump was inaugurated, was they wanted to get their hands on people's 401ks and IRAs, people's retirement money, their pension funds. And it's been illegal. And Trump and Eugene Scalia, the head of the Labor Department, just legalized this practice. The consequences could be dramatic. The video's over at TomHartman.com. Welcome back, Joe in Cupertino. Hey, Joe, what's up? Hi, Tom. I got like a 30-page document from the schools in the reopening. It was produced on the 30th of June, and I've been reading it. It's pretty scary. I agree with what you're saying. I mean, as a parent of two kids in high school, I'm not comfortable sending my kid to school. And I think that until a vaccine comes, most parents are probably going to go in that same direction. I don't want to get in trouble, so let me just real quick. Tom uh, Rose got a town hall meeting. The Supreme Court ruled. As a former Bernie Sanders representative, does Roe have to vote for Bernie since Bernie won California? Or is that not the way I understand it? I don't know how those rules work at that level of granularity, Joe. I'm sorry. Well, I thought that that's what that was meaning. It was not that individual of the college could decide that each state would vote. And since Bernie won California and Roe was his campaign guy, that he should vote for Bernie and see if we can have a contested convention. I don't know. I, you know, I doubt that the confident. convention is going to be contested, but I know that Bernie has been able to hang on to his delegates. The problem is those states that basically haven't held primaries. And the whole point of letting him hang on to his delegates was so that he would have more political power at the convention to influence the basically the platform. I mean, you know, and well, I yeah, guess, I guess that's who's got the co-chair with Broke. Karen Bassett's got the co-chair with Roe in California. So if I could get her as a VP candidate, I'd be willing to vote for Biden without much difficulty at all. Yeah. Okay. Well, let him know. Joe, thanks for the call. Steve in Lexington Park, Maryland. Hey, Steve, what's up? Hi, Tom. Thank you for taking my call. Just want to let you know I'm currently reading your book on voting, and I read the other two books also. Oh, great. Thank you. You're welcome. I got them through Free Speech TV by donating. First That's of all, great. just to qualify myself, I taught elementary school for 31 years, and I'm a currently a professor in teaching statistics for 24 years, and I teach, and since 1999, I've been teaching online, strictly online and through the hybrid method. So teaching, I agree with you, they should not open up the schools next fall. However, they can still teach online. They can do a high, if they have to, they can do a hybrid where small groups of kids would come in at least once a week to meet the teacher, social distancing, getting whatever lessons, then they go home and they open up their folder on their iPads and they can work. We are entering the iPad era out where my granddaughters 
go to school. When they get into third grade, they get iPads that follow them all the way through school. And since this has started, every day my granddaughters went on, the, on their iPads, got their assignments, did their assignments. Once a week, they were able to talk to their social worker, which is another word for counselor. And it all worked out. One of my granddaughters takes speech lessons. She took her speech lessons. So it can be done, but it's just got to be coordinated. Right. And, and it requires some infrastructure. And this is, you know, right. the, the Republicans have actually pushed legislation in some states to actually make it illegal for communities to do community Internet services and things uh, like no. that. So, yeah. Steve, brilliant. Thank you very much. You're listening to Tom Hartman. So speaking of labor circumstances, and we will continue to talk about coronavirus and Trump's incompetence. Actually, I don't even, I have gone beyond thinking he's incompetent. He's had so many people tell him that if he doesn't do what other developed countries around the world are doing and protect his people, there's going to be massive death in the United States. And he's just fine with that. And I think that Mary Trump's new book lays out exactly why. And we'll get into that, you know, actually next week. I think I want to do a deep dive on it because I just ordered a copy and they're, they're going to come. I think it's going to come early next week. And I don't know if you caught Rachel Maddow's show last night. She did a really, really good in-depth on it. It was fascinating. But speaking of labor conditions, Eugene Scalia, you know, Antonin Scalia was the right-wing crank on the Supreme Court who was, you know, basically the buddy boy of uh, the Koch brothers and their little network. He would go periodically, him and Clarence Thomas would be their royal guests at these billionaire conferences where they would decide, you know, which right-wing cause they were going to throw money at this year. And... Scalia was staying at one of these uh, fancy high-end places where you hunt trapped birds down in Texas when he had his heart attack. I believe it was a heart attack that killed him. And uh, but it turns out his son was a, a labor lawyer. And Trump said, well, let's put this guy in charge of the labor department. Now, he was a labor lawyer working to kill labor unions. So, of course, he's perfect for the Trump administration, right? This is from David Sirota's newsletter here, TMI. And David really needs to put the URL for his newsletter on the front page of his newsletter. (laughs) So people could easily find it. Uh, I'm sure you can Google it. It, Oh, last time he was on the show, I think he said it was uh, at davidsirota.com. Anyhow, he writes, first came Scalia's announcement about private equity. He said that in order to make sure, quote, ordinary people investing for retirement have the opportunities they need for a secure retirement, end quote, his agency is expanding the kinds of investments that financial managers can put your retirement savings in. Right. They can now put your money with private equity firms that charge notoriously high fees and don't deliver good returns. But, you know, pay good commissions and all that kind of stuff. Only a few days after Scalia loosened restrictions for private equity investments, David Sirota writes, he went in the opposite direction, proposing a rule to restrict financial manager's authority. Now, wait a minute. He, he says we're going to give the people who are handling your retirement money the ability to do more, more with it. Like, throw it into things that are really, really risky, like private equity, and that are heavily invested in fossil fuels. But we're going to restrict your money, your, your financial advisor's ability 
to put your money someplace else. Where would that be? Oh, gee, green funds. Yes, environmentally sustainable or socially responsible investments known as ESGs. Those are now forbidden. And then to cap this whole thing off, Scalia then says, this is David Strode again, Scalia then completed his long-standing effort to gut an Obama-era rule designed to make sure that financial advisors are working in the best interest of their clients. This is called fiduciary responsibility. And basically what it says is, if you are advising somebody on where to put their money, you cannot advise them to put money in something that makes you a big profit but will hurt them. You have to put their interests ahead of your own. And Eugene Scalia says, oh, screw that. So here's the summary from David Sirota. Secretary of Labor actively weakening conflict of interest rules for money managers, helping them shift workers' savings into high-risk private equity schemes, all while he tries to prevent those same financial managers from moving workers' savings into lower-risk, environmentally sustainable investments. Now, who's benefiting from this? The fossil fuel industry and the private equity industry, Mitt Romney's industry. And surprise, surprise, David Sirota notes left unsaid in the trio of directories is a big financial boost to the fossil fuel and private equity industries. And surprise, surprise, they pumped huge money into the Republican Party. Since 2016, donors in the fossil fuel industry and donors from private equity and investment firms have delivered roughly $300 million to Republican candidates for federal office. Now, I don't think there's more than about 300 Republican candidates for federal office, are there? About half of Congress. Well, that's, that's the House and Senate. I mean, what else is? So it's over a million dollars per Republican candidate coming out of fossil fuels and private equity. So yeah, Scalia, in his daddy's memory, let's keep America safe for the billionaires, the private equity guys in the fossil fuel industry and American working people and to hell with them. A lot on our plate. Are you going to send your kids back to school this fall? And again, I ask the question, if the COVID is so bad that Paul Manafort has to get out of jail, why do my kids or grandkids have to go to school? This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is The Deep History of Ourselves, The Four Billion Year History of How We Got Conscious Brains by Joseph Ledoux. This is from the prologue, Why on Earth? The Deep History of Ourselves explores the place of human beings in the nearly four billion year long history of life. When I mentioned to a friend that I was writing such a book, she asked, why on earth are you taking on such a project? She knew that I'd spent most of my scientific career studying circuits in the rat's brain that underlie behavioral reactions to danger with an eye to how that information could help us understand at least some aspects of human emotions, especially fear and anxiety. Part of the answer to my friend's question is that if we really want to understand human nature, we have to understand its evolutionary history. Our behavior is part of our biology. And as the evolutionary biologist Theodosius Dobzhansky once said, nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. That behavior and evolution are interrelated is hardly a novel idea. Darwin emphasized it, as did pioneering ethnologists such as Nico Tingbergen and Conrad Lorenz. The behaviorists who dominated psychology in the first half of the 20th century paid little attention to evolution, but most contemporary psychologists and neuroscientists accept it as a key factor. Most efforts to understand the evolution of behavior, especially in neuroscience, typically focus on the relationship between closely related groups. 
such as humans and other mammals. There are obvious reasons to do so. For example, since the brain controls behavior, studies of how brains evolved in such groups help us understand the evolution of their respective behavioral repertoire and also ours. But there's also good reason to look deeper. For example, research comparing mammals, often rodents, and invertebrates, such as flying worms, are showing results that show the connection between these and also are helping reveal how memory works in us. In this book, I've opted to dive even deeper, in fact, very deep, all the way back to the beginning of life and even to the so-called prebiotic chemical conditions of the earth, which made biology and hence life possible. I've always been casually interested in the evolution of brain and behavior, but never pursued the topic with such vigor. Then in 2009, I spent some time in Cambridge on sabbatical and became friendly with Seth Grant, a neurobiologist who I first met while he was a postdoc uptown working in Nobel laureate Eric Kandel's lab at Columbia. While there, he began researching the evolution of genes involved in synaptic plasticity to better understand the biological mechanisms of learning and memory and was continuing this line of work at Cambridge. Seth found parallels in plasticity-related genes between rodents and sea slugs, suggesting that may, they may each have inherited the ability to learn from a common ancestor that lived hundreds of millions of years ago. But even more interesting, some of the same genes exist in single-cell protozoa. That's relevant, since animals in current-day protozoa share a common ancestor that lived over a billion years ago. Some of the learning-related genes in our nervous system may therefore come to us via such microbial ancestors. If you know anything about protozoa, you may be scratching your head regarding these findings. Most people, if they think about it at all, think of behavior, and especially learned behavior, as the product of a nervous system. But protozoa, being single-celled organisms, don't have nervous systems, since that requires special cells, neurons, and they only possess one all-purpose cell. Yet they have a robust behavioral life. They swim away from harmful chemicals and toward useful ones, and they even use past experience to guide their present responses, suggesting that they have the ability to both learn and remember. The logical conclusion is that behavior, learning, and memory don't actually require a nervous system. This was eye-opening to me, so I did a little research to see what was known about the behavioral capacities of single-cell organisms. I found accounts not only of their swimming away from danger and toward nutrients, but also of moving toward or away from chemicals or sunlight to balance fluids or regulate temperature inside the cell relative to its environment. Protozoa even engage in mating behavior, sex, to reproduce their kind. Protozoa are relatively recent single-celled organisms, having appeared about two billion years ago, when they evolved from another familiar single-cell creature, bacteria, who are the oldest living organisms, having emerged about three and a half billion years ago. Bacteria exhibit many of the same kinds of behaviors that protozoa do, uh, but they did so first. They approach and avoid useful and harmful things in their world, and they even learn from experience what is useful and harmful in their world. They don't, however, reproduce sexually. They simply divide in half. Sex is the behavioral claim to fame of eukaryotes, I'm, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, which evolve from bacteria and which include protozoa and animals. When animals engage in defensive energy management, fluid balance, and reproductive behaviors by freezing, fleeing, eating, drinking, and mating, scientists and laypeople often describe these activities as an expression of underlying psychological states, consciously felt experiences such as fear, hunger, thirst, and sexual pleasure. In doing so, we effectively project our own experiences onto these organisms. 
Given how ancient these behaviors are and how they arose long before nervous systems, we should probably be more judicious in making such attributions based on our mental states. And then he continues, The Deep History of Our Cells, The Four Billion Year Story of How We Got Conscious Brains by Joseph Ledoux. Diane in Little Rock, Arkansas, your thoughts? Yeah, school is not open. I was around last winter when the regular flu went through the schools and they had to shut down and we had a vaccine for that. I didn't catch it. I had a, had the vaccine. You're but a teacher? We had a 20, almost a 20% absentee rate. They shut down Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, cleaned up the schools, came back to school. Almost everybody came back. So keeping children out of school does work to cut the infection rate and that's when we had a vaccine so that will tell you that will run through the schools very rapidly they're going to have to do distance learning so you are a teacher diane a substitute uh -huh. teacher for the last and six years so i i substitute when those teachers get sick <laughs> so ah Okay. And how are you feeling about going in uh, to the Arkansas schools and substitute teaching in today's environment with uh, this? No, I'm not going back until there's a vaccine. And I guarantee yeah. you if they try to open schools, if the regular flu could run through the schools like it did, which a lot of people are vaccinated, then what's going to happen with this virus? Right. I agree. I think it's uh, I think it's just the worst kind of public policy. Diane, thank you. Thank you for the call. You know, and I get, you know, kids need to be educated. They need social experience. Parents need a break. I get all that. But none of that helps you if you're dead or if you have dementia for the rest of your life because you got a blood clot in the brain from a mild case of COVID-19. I mean, that's how nasty this disease is. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy requires you. We've all got to pitch in if we're going to make this thing work. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening be good to, to yourself Tom and Hartman. See you tomorrow. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.